today's episode, my friend Noah Shaw. Noah is a healer, an energy, a coach. He's sort of like the OG rock star. You probably know him from Soul Cycle and how he rules a room, but I know him from a Lululemon ambassador meeting when I walked into a sea of 30 people and I immediately felt the connection with Noah. He's that powerful. So on today's episode, we talk all things healing and trauma, alcoholism, addiction, recovery, overcoming odds, the challenges we're facing today, we faced in the past, and the ones that we'll be facing for the foreseeable, if not the future. Uh, Noah, his first book just came out, Stop Thinking Thoughts That Scare You. You can find it on Amazon, and you can find Noah on Instagram at noahshot 26 Don't forget to rate this episode in the iTunes store and I will keep them coming. But yeah, I mean, I sat on my ass like everybody else and gained a bunch of weight and you know, just took it easy, had a heart attack, um, you know, became a type two diabetic, oh my God. got furloughed from work, you know, it was, but, it, but it all happened in three days. So I just got, got it over with. So it was a nice relaxing. I mean, I, you're still teaching at SoulCycle though. Yeah. I'm back. Yeah. I'm back. Oh, so furloughed and then rehired. Yes. One thing, an outdoor activation. Okay. How's the outdoor going? I love it. It's, you know, some days it's chilly, some days it's not. Um, I'm just, you know, they were like, what's your temperature threshold? And I'm like, if you're open, I'm teaching. Like, I need to earn money and I need a job. So um, I just, you know, I'm just going for it. Yeah. I mean, okay, so Noah Shaw, who is, I don't, I don't really like to give like definitions. I'd actually rather you introduce yourself, but from how I know you in this world, you are someone who speaks to every walk of life, all ages from, from like, you just see humans as they are. And um, you've seen a lot of life. You've seen a lot of the world. You've seen a lot of dark and you still carry so much light. So that's how I see you. How do you, you introduce yourself? that's a really great question i really you know it's sort of like it's when i you know when i meet people i'm just like hey i'm noah how and you know what usually follows is how are you doing you know i don't really uh it's not that i'm afraid to talk about myself i'm fine with it you know i don't really have a category that i it's not that i don't feel comfortable i'm a life coach uh, I'm a healer, I guess. I hesitate to use that word um, because it has so many other connotations, but it's what I do. I, I, I have always, and since I've been sentient, I guess, or since I was young, um, people who are in pain, I find them, they find me, and I help them whether it's physically, emotionally, or spiritually. Um, I went through a lot of darkness, like you said. Um, I'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic. I'm a survivor of, I'm a PTSD survivor of, of, it wasn't like I had one series, like I had like 10 or 12 different events that caused my PTSD. Uh, I'm a survivor. I mean, I've recently just started talking about this 
of sexual assault when I was young, which I didn't really even chalk up to sexual assault until a year ago. I had this story. See, I was like 10 years old and my friend's 14-year-old sister started having sex with me and doing sexual things with me. And I used it in a very, you know, male-dominated world in a not very introspective time coming from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s, even in the early 2000s until like 2018 until I, I would tell this story about like, how crazy is this? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's sort of like a braggadocious manner. And one of my best friends, we were taking a ride and I told him this, I never told you that story? And he goes, so you were sexually assaulted? And I was like, what? He goes, yeah, dude, that's not normal for a 14 or 15-year-old girl to have sex with a 10-year-old boy. And I had like, it, like, it made like, it was like, it was like the gears falling in place. Like, oh, that explains so many behaviors for 40 years. Yeah. I'm so, sorry. yeah, I can relate way too closely to that, but carry on. So- yeah. I mean, so it's like, how do I introduce myself? Like I'm, I, I, I finish every email with my signature is Noah Shaw. I'm here to help. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just, I feel I'm a helper. So then when do you honor like, like the idea of like, your power as a healer, as a coach, but also like... Or you cut out there at the very end. Asking for help. So like you're here to help. And, and so I also see you as someone who is like... But like, how often do you ask for help? Oh, I ask for... I, I, I have become better at asking for help when better means that I'm a thousandfold better than I was. I didn't ask for help for decades of pain and anger and sadness and low self-worth and terrible self-esteem, um, suicidal even in my darkest moments. And it's a funny thing. It's like, as I was, when I was, when I was in high school, junior high into high school and high school, mostly everybody called me uncle Noah Hmm. and they would like come to me. Like they would come to an uncle. I was, I was always about a year older, but it was like, it wasn't about my age. It was about my presence. And they would bring their problems to me and they would tell me the stuff, what they're going through and guys and girl problems and life problems and parent problems. And, and they would just come to me. And so I escaped New York City in 1982 to go to school in Texas because there were a bunch of people who wanted to kill me. And I was walking through my dorm, and this is before the internet, before anything. Uh, And I was walking through my dorm my second day there, and one of the guys walking by me was like, what's up, Uncle Noah? And I was like, like, there's no way he could have known that. And so I was just always Uncle Noah. And then I turned 30 and I was living in Boston and I was running a nightclub and one of my bartenders had to do a cash out and he's like, Hey Papa, can you cash me out? And I was like, I guess I'm Papa now. And everybody started calling me Papa. Then again, this is pre-internet really, you know, no social media, no, nobody following anybody. And then I moved to LA four years later and I had another bar and I was doing a cash out and one of the bartenders was like, Papa, can you cash me out? And I was like, now I'm Papa. I'm still Papa. So I'm still to a great many people who've known me since then. I'm still Papa. 
So, you know, even in my darkest hours, even when I was like, I had 15 years sobriety, I relapsed, I started smoking weed and I was in like this dark hole. I was dealing weed, large quantities. I had this house full of people all the time. All these kids who were much younger than me, you know, like in their early 20s and stuff. And my house became a haven. You know, they would sleep there. They knew they were safe there. They, a lot of them, you know, broken homes and bad homes and abusive homes. And I was just Papa and I would pay their bills and I would help them out. And I was somebody that they knew they could lean on. Even though I was in pain, brutal pain, I wouldn't show it to anybody. And I would just go on being Papa because they needed me to be strong for them. Right. So but you needed you to be strong for you. When, I, when my life fell apart, when I got arrested and my life fell apart, I finally, and I needed, I know, I knew I wanted to get my sobriety back. I asked for help yeah. very humbly. And, and everything that you're saying, like it just, it sounds, and it seems like because you've felt pain and you identify with that, you saw pain. So people That's in it. pain, they, it was like, you felt your pain, you saw pain, the pain, you know, felt you. And it's interesting how we've connected. And, and I think about, you know, the short time that I known you, but in there is, who knows there's there's some sort of energy that's exchanged of like understanding that we all have a walk of life and it's not always as cookie cutter and beautiful as it looks on the outside it's especially in the world that we're living in right now it's actually about like you know the heart the soul the the life you know but all of that is in relation to pain we all just have a different it's, experience it's 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 a both and yeah you know, it's both and. It's like, yes, I can be in pain. Yes, I can help people. You know, it's it, that's that's the the balance of life. Now, you and I are, are are attracted to each other and found each other because I talk about this in class and I talk about this in my practice all the time as a life coach. And it's like when people are bothering you, it's it's when we, I don't know if you remember when you were in elementary school and you first had found magnets. I loved magnets. I loved magnets when I was a little kid. And you would put the magnets together and they would just snap together. And then, because I was a contrarian, they would tell us, like, turn the magnets around. And when you turn the magnets around, you'd reverse the polarity, you couldn't get the magnets to go together. They wouldn't stick. There was, like, you was reversing it and the energy was different. One magnet wasn't right and one magnet wasn't wrong. They just weren't aligned energetically. You had to have the right side to make it work. So that's that way with people you know people if they don't have an uh, the energy that i do they're gonna be be like oh, i don't like that guy and i imagine there's a lot of people that don't like me and that's fine mm -hmm. you know i had a very wise man say this is how you walk through life you walk pretend like every day you're walking into a room full of 100 people 50 of them don't like you and 50 of them love you which one are you going to focus on? So you and I, we we're on the same energy. We we we, we smash together. Yeah. We're magnetic, and that's just energy. That's we are metal. We're stardust. We're everything. And so that magnetism, the same thing that makes the magnets attracted to each other, is the same thing that makes humans attracted to each other. And yeah, yes, does pain find me? Yes, because that's what I I radiate. Help. 
I was on I was on a train. It was Thanksgiving seven years ago, and I had gone up to Connecticut to see my parents. And I was had to run. I had to teach the next day, so I left at like seven thirty or eight o'clock. Jumped on a train. I was coming back in the city, and I was just sitting there quietly minding my own business. And I heard this girl behind me talking to the conductor. She's like, "Listen, I don't have any money for the train. I'm sorry. Just write me the ticket, whatever it costs. You know, I just can't go through it. You know." And I could hear her like as she was explaining it, getting more and more emotional and just getting upset. And she was like sort of getting angry and upset. And I just popped my head over the seat and I looked, caught the conductor's eyes. I'm like, don't worry, I got it. And he came up to me and I gave him the $15 or whatever it was. And then you know, time went by and like about five minutes later, she sat, came and sat down across the aisle from me. And she goes, why did you do that? You didn't need to fucking do that. And I was like, well, you needed help. She goes, but why me? Why did you help me? I go, that's just what I do. And then it was the next 45 minutes to an hour as it took to get in the city. She unloaded all of her pain on me mm. and I helped her find a way through it. And from that day on, she, and well, she was, she was, Instagram wasn't even a thing yet. She would like Facebook put a post up and be like, I met my train Joel today. And my train Joel saved my ass. And it was like, I don't, I don't know this girl, but like, my energy says, help you. I want to help you. And I want to just preface this by saying that this point in my life, I, I dealt a lot of drugs, a lot of cocaine in the 80s, 70s and 80s, and then a lot of weed in the early 2000s in LA. So when you've done what I came to find out during this period of sobriety, early in this sobriety, I was made aware by certain people I worked with to like stop and think about, you know, and I glorified it just like the sexual assault. I glorified my drug dealing days. Then when I stopped and I thought about like the ton, like literally like a quarter ton of cocaine that I've dealt, like how much pain have I put out in the world? How many people became addicted, got addicted, killed themselves, overdosed? Like what have I put in this world? Wow. And the same thing with the weed. So I've put so much pain in this world that now from sobriety, from when I got sober in uh, September of 2007 until now, it's my mission to help people because that's me making an amends to the world. That's actually beautiful. I'd never thought about that. I think that's like... Wow. Like deep breath after that one. That's um, full circle. That's, that's pretty incredible. I never thought about that. I mean, why would I? I didn't know that story to the depth of your experience on the other end, you know, in your pain. Um, but then that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And in that whole journey, like, and post sobriety or, you know, since sobriety, um, how do you create bound, like boundaries or barriers because you're taking in pain and you're giving pain, whatever you gave pain, now you take in pain or you hear pain in a way that like you don't allow the energy to take your light at this point in your life. Like how do you really create healthy boundaries around, I'm not talking about your clients, the people that you coach, but the people who sit on you, you know, or at a train or stop you in the street or when things come at you, have you really like create a wall around your, to create, to keep your safe space, your space safe. Okay. Great. Great question. Interesting answer. Now I've been going to AA for God over 30 years, almost through 28 of those I've been sober. And even this year I was you know, 13 years sober. And when I guess it was about September, 
after I turned 13 years, right at September, I was invited to go to a Zoom meeting on a Saturday night at 10 p.m. East Coast time. It was an LA meeting. It's called Interview with an Alcoholic. Now, at this point in my life, I've been to tens of thousands of meetings all over the world. And this one was different. It was uh, some of the, the host interviews the speaker. Instead of like somebody telling their story, people asking questions, the host will, the guy will start to tell this guy or girl will start to tell the story. Be like, well, tell me about how did that affect your relationship with your parents? And what was it like having that first drink? And it was this guy I was texting. I had found the meeting the week before. So I had told a bunch of friends. I thought this, and my friend with 35 years, like, this is the best meeting I've ever been to. And he was like, you got to go. So I found it the first week and the next week I was like, yo, you guys, you, everybody's got to go to this meeting. It's incredible. And we were all texting before the meeting, like, you guys ready? This is going to be incredible. Not having any idea. And the speaker came on and he was a man named Luther Woods. And when he got done, when he got done talking, he was 83 years old with 48 years of support. A million A speakers, like literally almost a million. And I was... I was take. we were all like eight of us on a text message were just taken aback. I was like, is that Yoda? Like that is the wisest, most peaceful, most spiritual human I've ever heard speak in my entire life. And I've had some incredible spiritual people in my life. And it took me three, I got his number and it took me three days to text him. And then he called, like he said, can you talk? Can we call. And I said, sure. He said, well, what can I do for you? And I said, I need what you have. And he said, well, I'm, I'm going with the steps. He was had this way of, he told this story and it's amazing. This friend of his, even with 11 years sobriety, he said, you're in so much pain and you, you need to get rid of this pain. And he brought him through the 12 steps in a way that was completely unlike anything else. And I said, I need to work with you. He said, I, I said, I want to work with you doing the steps. And he said, well, I've got a guy that I'm working with in New York State, and you guys would be in the same time zone. And so just work with him, and he's ahead of you, so it'll be fine. And I said, no, I, I want to work with you. And he said, why? I said, I have to. And he said, well, those are the magic words. Now, I'll, I'm going to get to your question in a minute. So we started Zooming, and... The second time I was on the phone, on the Zoom call with him, and he's this beautiful, white-haired, 83-year-old man full of vim and vigor. There's, he would swear he's like in his 70s. And he got on the Zoom and he goes, Noah, you look lighter. I said, Luther, I feel lighter. I said, I got to tell you something, Luther. I said, I'm a liar. He goes, what do you mean? Like, I've been a liar for a lot of years. I tell stories. I make shit up. I make excuses why I can't do things. Like, I just lie. And he goes, you know what, Noah? Me too. Because we're liars. We're alcoholics. That's what we do. So you don't have to bear that. You don't have to carry that anymore. And, I, and this, this weight, which I can only describe, the best way I've found to describe this, and I'll get to the finale in a minute, this weight slipped off of me that felt like a, a weighted blanket, like I'd been carrying a weighted blanket wrapped around my shoulders for 50 years. And in that moment, that blanket slid off of me. And I've begun to pursue this spiritual path with Luther 
and some other guys that he sponsors and some other guys he's put me on to. And I found that the more I work on my spiritual well-being, my connection to a power greater than myself, the let that is my boundary. That protects me, that creator, that new friend, that guide, God, Jesus, Satan, Buddha, Allah, whatever fucking people need to call it. My God is a strong black woman because I think that's the strongest thing in the world. And I know that I'm God's favorite because I'm her, she has me as her screensaver. And if you don't have a power in your life that has you as your screensaver, get a new fucking power. But that's my boundary is that I'm protected no matter what. I don't care what your, it doesn't matter what your energy is or what you bring to my world. You can stop me and scream at me and holler at me. I know my God is my God who I call God just, it's, a, it's just a word, it's just semantics. There's nothing, there's nothing religious about that. My God is bigger than your energy. Um, I like that. It sounds like an unbelievable guy. And I like that you, um, you put a picture to what your God is. And, um, and then as you were talking about this and talking about, you know, the cloak that you wore or the pain that you felt or the lies that you told, it just, something drew me to want to ask you in your darkest day, in that, that moment, that depth of pain, what did it feel like? <laughs> the darkest day I've ever experienced was in 1987. Um, do we have a minute? Can I tell a story? I'll try to make it as brief as possible. I had gone and I'd been living in the East Coast, went on a horrific cocaine run, um, one of my last, and I had stolen tens of thousands of dollars from my parents who were out of town. I had escaped suicide by running away to Utah where I had a friend in college who saved my life from this disease of alcoholism who unfortunately took his own life about six months ago due to this disease. Um, and I got to Utah and my parents didn't speak to me for about nine months then for the last three months. They stuck to me and they were going to come out to Utah and visit with me for a long weekend, like a, a Wednesday to a Monday. And they came out and they saw that I was much healthier and I was doing better. I was just drinking. You know, when they were there, I was on my best behavior and they did all the things to try and help me. They gave me money and they bought me a car and they clothing and they set me up in a new apartment and they did all those things. And I dropped them off at the airport on Monday morning at about 10 a.m. And I drove to... I drove to my favorite bar, the Green Green Velvet or Green Hammer, I can't remember the name, Green something, Green Streets, that's what it was. And I remember walking in the bar and then I completely black out. And I wake up the next morning, I, the, what I think is the next morning in a hotel room in Chicago. I don't, hold on, I wake up in a hotel room. I think I'm in Chicago in Salt Lake because that's where I live. And sometimes we would go get hotel rooms to party in. Some girl laying next to me, the room is destroyed. And I lit a cigarette and I walked over to the window and I opened the curtains and it was a massive city. And I looked down and it said, welcome to the Holiday Inn in Chicago. And I called the front desk and they're like, I was like, what time is it? And they're like, it's 2.30. I go, what day is it? They go, it's Sunday. I had lost a week. 
I woke the girl up. I was like, what the fuck? She's like, oh my God, you've been partying so hard for a week. You've been buying rounds every bar and like crazy. We had people in here. There was tons of Coke and you were going nuts. It was the best, most fun I've ever had. I've been with you for a week. To this day, I have no idea what that girl's name is. Um, they ended up kicking me about an hour later. They came knocking on the door. They threw me out of the hotel. I had just the clothes on my back and like a dollar twenty-five, And I went to a payphone and I called my father. Now I come from east coast stock family is everything my parents have been married since they my father asked my mother to marry him on a first date they were married 90 days later the first time he laid on eyes on her he said to his best friend he said i'm gonna i'm gonna marry that girl so like they are the most wonderful beautiful loving kind people in the world and i put them through torture and i called my father collective course because i'm a scumbag and didn't have any money and he goes, where the fuck have you been? We've been, for a week, we've been trying to get you. I go, I'm in Chicago. He goes, where's, where's everything? Where's the, where's the apartment? I'm like, it's gone. Where's your clothing? I'm like, it's gone. Where's the money we gave you? We gave you like tens of thousands of dollars. So it's all gone. We got rid of everything. And I said, dad, I think I'm going to kill myself. And my father said to me, Noah, if that's what you've got to do, then that's what you've got to do and hung up the phone on me. Now, when you've pushed your parents to the point that they, they believe that there would be less pain for you and for the entire family if you were dead, that was the darkest moment of my life. My father told me to kill myself. He didn't tell you to, but he said if you got now. If you have to, but, but that's the way it computed in my brain. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like... I'm thinking, you know, every time you speak of these stories and I think about my family and the relationship my parents have, and I've definitely put my parents through a fair amount of pain, not potentially to that extent, but in different ways. And I also like, I think from my experience, I'm learning as I get older that like, we're not our family, even though that's where we come from. And no matter how much love we've gotten and how many, how much means we have and the tight knit connection so often, at least in my experience, I didn't get the love that I needed. Like as a child, like I was expansive. I speak feelings. I'm all, you know, and I was one and I have three brothers and nobody talks about emotions. So I was this fireball of emotion and nobody knew how to handle me. So I lashed out in other ways. But when I think about um, when in your experience in the family relationship, like I can only imagine what he was feeling. And if he hung up the phone, then what he thought after, you know, like, because it could have just been on instinct, like, fuck, I can't believe he lost all the money. We've tried everything we could you know, and saying something in that moment of anger or pain and then hanging up and then not knowing where he went. He was crushed. I'm sure. He was crushed. We've talked about it. He was crushed. He thought I'd be dead. He was sure that I was going to kill him. I'd already tried to kill myself a couple of times before that. He was sure I was going to be dead. How do you handle, because we're New York City and fitness and whatever, lifestyle, and you know a lot of people, I know a lot of people. How do you handle if you see somebody that has a very strong substance abuse problem, or if you're around substances all the time, like, do you intervene? Do you say something? Do you remove yourself? Are you, I, I, you're beyond strong. So I, I, don't, I would assume that you're not affected by this, but maybe affected by somebody else's pain around it. Um, you know, it's, I, you know, 
we talked in, when we are in AA, one of the, one of the principles of AA is attraction rather than promotion. Um, just because of my lifestyle, because I could, because I'm basically a fucking hermit and I don't get out even when there wasn't a pandemic, I don't go out very much. I'm really not around substances. You know, I'd go to like the holiday Christmas party once a year, like, you know, maybe I go to a bar or restaurant a few times a year, but I don't really get out that much. But I found that by speaking my truth on the podium at soul cycle and letting people know I'm sober. I've had a lot, a number of riders who've approached me and been like, hey, I need help. What can I do? And it's funny because I had this series in Williamsburg where it was like one girl asked me and I got her help and I showed her how to like find AA and got in the program. And she started and I connected her with somebody else I knew who was a sponsor. Then I had like another girl was like, hey, I need help. And I was like, great, she can help you. Julia can help you. And then, then another girl came, I was like, Hey, Julia and Meg can help you. And then it became like six or seven of them that were like all, you know, at varying lengths of variety, just helping each other. I created, I would just create this little like in-class support group and they would just, then they would come and ride together and they would go out to dinner together afterwards. And, you know, and you know, it was, just, it was, it was beautiful. I, I just talk about it a lot. And if people are hurting and I let them know that I'm there for them, they can, they will find me out. They will seek me out. You think fitness, because it's like, I mean, it's like the other end of the spectrum, but I, I, in my experience, like it definitely attracts a lot of addicts because it, it creates another place for people to express themselves or differently or fill that void or fill that empty, that hole in a healthier way. It, yeah, exercise addiction is a very real thing. You know, and it can be very dangerous. Um, not, not, not putting uh, a sexist point on it, but I've I've seen it cause more physical harm to women who get really addicted to, to exercise than to men. I that's just because I witness more women probably, and I just don't see it manifest in men because I'm not around that many men. And my job is very, and my life is very female oriented. Um, but you know, it can be one of the most healthy things to do, you know, almost, you know, I've worked with every, almost um, every level of mental health disorder there is. And every psychiatrist I talk to, every therapist you talk to is like, get exercise, it helps. If you're OCD, get exercise. If you're ADHD, get exercise. If you're anxiety or depression or nervous disorder, get exercise. If you're bipolar, get exercise. Also take your meds, do your therapy. But like exercise is key to finding that flow state and finding those endorphins and allowing your body to heal itself naturally. Was it part of your healing journey post sobriety? Like, how did you find fitness? How did you find? Well, I found it because I, I, I used food as a coping mechanism, food and cigarettes. And I, and I turned into a 300 person, 300 pound person that smoked four packs of cigarettes a day. So then I found Soul Cycle and I became, okay, I'm going to fucking, I, after living through the most dangerous things in my life, like suicide attempts and being shot at and having contracts out of my life and people trying to kill me and like people stabbing me and people trying to throw me off buildings and stuff like that. Like I got to this point, the doctor told me I was about to have a massive heart attack and die on the spot. And I was like, well, that's fucked up. It's like, I'm going to go through, I'm going to live through like bullets whizzing past me and being shot at but I'm going to die from too much McDonald's. And that's what went through my mind, my first soul cycle class. And it just, I was just like, I went to two classes the next day and then three, the day after that, the night we did three classes or at least, at least two 
three classes a day, every day for like 90 days for three months. I was like, and I changed my diet. So it's just, it became something to chase. I was just chasing help because I was getting, and listen, the praise was great. People, I was not only was I feeling better, but I was like inspiring others. There was a, the Lululemon at Beverly Hills. They had like these staff rides they would do once a week and they would call up the studio and be like, Hey, when is Noah riding? Cause we want to come and arrive. Other people were calling souls. Like I'm being, Hey, do you know what class Noah's taking today? And they'd be like, cause I want to ride with that guy. Cause I'd hoot and I'd holler and I'd be like, you know, I was 300 pounds. And I, I, my first class, I took the bike closest in the front row, closest to the door because I figured that I was going to die during class and I didn't want to be on a bike in the back and cause a whole rigmarole. I just wanted them to be able to pick my body up, carry me out of class so they wouldn't have to interrupt the class. Crazy. I mean, good for you. So I rode that front corner bike for a while, forever, and because that was my bike. You changed in that soul room and process. Everything changed. Yeah, no, I wanted to, a couple more questions and then we're going to jump, but one, psychedelics are a really big buzzword these days. I'm curious, and, and a huge, I mean, there's a ton of um, research to like legalize MDMA for PTSD specifically. Assume Absolutely. you're not, I mean, I don't know your experience with any of these, but do you, because in talking about your recent um, understanding of your sexual trauma, I think like particularly in like sexual trauma victims, like MDMA is being used for um, for therapeutic purposes and psilocybin, whatever else. and you know, it was in my own COVID experience, my, my life has been upended because my business and whatever else, but more so because I sort of went along a spiritual path to like really do the shadow work that I needed to do that was holding me back from living the most embodied life I could live. And I felt like something was, was um, blocking me and I had no idea what it was. And something led me to psychedelics and, uh, Unfortunately, um, but fortunately, now that I know, similar, like severe sexual trauma more than once that I completely blacked out and uh, had no idea happened until the memory started flooding back. So I'm wondering, one, what do you think about psychedelics? And two, since you've remembered your or understood the trauma, did that affect the relationships you had with women? as you got older? Um, Sorry, too. Psychedelics, psychedelics first. Uh, I am all for using anything people need to use to heal. Uh, we've been shoving fucking chemicals in people for decades. Now, myself, I take Prozac. I've been taking it for a long time. It works for me. I haven't changed the dosage in 15 years. Um, and I use it and, it and it works fine for me. It allows me to sleep. I take a little melatonin. Um, I think, and I believe in MDMA, a uh, little known fact is that my grandfather was on the FDA for the approval of methadoxyl methamphetamine. He was, a, he was a clinical, he was a clinical psychologist at, and one of the directors of Bellevue hospital where they were doing the testing on it on schizophrenics. So, you know, got like 1970s and late 80s. Um, 
I, I believe that there are ways out there to heal. And I believe explored. this is where I sort of veer off a little bit is with addiction and alcoholism. I'm actually dealing with one of my clients right now who's a full-blown alcoholic. And um, they... It makes a noise. What's that? I think it makes a noise when you like move or something. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'll sit still. Um, I, I think to avoid AA, I know a lot of people are like, I'll take Ibogaine, I'll take ayahuasca, I'll do this, I'll do that. Whether it's whatever 12-step program, if people are trying to get sober, um, I wouldn't recommend starting off with another drug. But with people who don't have a drug and alcohol problem, I think some of the drugs and overseen by trained psychiatrists, leaders, guides, they can be incredibly spiritual, incredibly powerful, and help people to really break down some walls and, and let go of some pain that they're carrying around. Yeah, I mean, I think just like in such an opposition way, like the, your experience with drugs, and I had never done a hard drug before, like smoked pot a couple of times, and MDMA was, I was, you know, in a situation, in a healing situation, and it was a psilocybin MDMA like uh, experience, and um, I guess I, I never felt called to do drugs, and it was probably because this was my time for, you know, my sort of life to open up to what had happened to me. So it was like, to me, it's not a drug, it's such a medicine, but it's interesting how you speak about like, you know, addicts who want to cure themselves with ayahuasca. And it's it's so true and it's so real. Um, so yeah, I guess, as you said, like things can be used correctly or uh, they can be an, an extra harm or an avoidance. There's a lot of vets with a lot of PTSD who are like medical marijuana is working wonders for them. You know, the, the numbers and you can see in the States that medical marijuana and the PTSD and the and the, the number of suicides dropping in States that have medical marijuana and marijuana available, where they don't have to steal it or buy it on the black market and they're easy access to it. The numbers are profoundly dropping um, of suicides, especially of vets. Um, and it gives them an outlet. Um, MDMA, psilocybin, all of them are wonderful tools. They're natural um, and they're good. And then uh, the second part of your question is sexuality. You know, it, I, I've never really, I haven't really had, it's an interesting question. I think it explains more my sexual behaviors when I was younger you know, that constant need for sex, mm. that validation, where at 57, I just don't have that anymore. You know, I just don't have that, like, and, and if having, having healed, I just don't run around trying to fuck everything I meet. You know, I'm just not that guy anymore because I don't, I don't act impulsively. I don't act, I'm not driven by that, but it definitely drove me for, you know, I guess subconsciously for many years. Yeah, I know? think that's what, it, like beyond like the sexuality, like your relationship to women, like in your past relationships, considering if you were assaulted at 10, you know, and that was your first foray into this experience. It's like, 
I would imagine that some of your behaviors from that age would have mirrored, like, like you said, that need or that, you know, cause it was normalized for you at a very young age. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I haven't really, because it wasn't a sexual assault until a year ago, I would know it was never present on my brain. It was never a thought that I had gone through something bad. I was, you know, and also subsequently the older I got, um, and I got taken out of, I had been, you know, earlier when I was younger and I was running nightclubs and I was dealing drugs. I was a cool guy. I was like, you know, I was cool and I was hip. And then as you got older and I got fatter and I got less attractive females. And so that then, um, played into my negative self sense of self-worth and the low self-esteem that I'd always carried around. Even when I was pretending to be a badass and a great guy, you know, I can remember very specifically, I was nine years old and, and my school elementary school was going on a field trip skiing in new England. And I remember sitting in my seat alone cause I was a new kid. I didn't have any friends. I remember two girls popping over the seat and looking at me and saying, you're ugly and you're weird and we don't like you. And they sat back down. Now, if I could draw, I could draw that tomorrow. Like that moment created everything. That moment has never not been there. So I didn't like myself. So as I got older and you know, all my friends were having a lot of sex and I was in AA and everybody's fucking everybody. And I'm not fucking, I wasn't fucking anybody. I was just by myself every night. I didn't even give a fuck about porn. I didn't, I didn't really care. And so I became very just asexual in a way. Like I wanted to be loved. I wanted to have sex. I thought girls were hot. I, the girls that I liked, there were girls I liked, but they didn't give me the time of day. Yeah. Ah, and then interesting now that most of your work is, I, it sounds like with women, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, so. it's, it's the, I mean, it's funny because I just got a new puppy as everybody on Instagram knows. Um, and I had two dogs when I lived in LA, when I was a drug dealer and when I just really sobriety in my early sobriety, uh, they were, one was 15 and one was 14. And I had to put both of them down in 30 days. I lost both of my boys and they were my best friend and they saved my life a couple of times. And my life was very male centered and very male dominated. So I went, I finally, my life organized. It took 13 years to get my life in a place where I get another dog. And I saw this dog at this rescue company. He was this little boy, little black boy puppy named Smokey. And I was like, this is great. He's going to be amazing. He's going to be my new good boy. And about three weeks after I finished my adoption papers and I was ready to adopt and I'd been approved, the owner of the rescue company said, Hey, a little bit of a mix up, but Smokey is a girl. Oh my God. And I said, she said, do you still want her? I said, of course I do. And it, it aligned perfectly because when my life was very male dominated, which it had been from like childhood until my, you know, early forties. Now my life is women dominated, female dominated. So now I have a girl dog and sometimes I'll be like, who's a good boy? Who's a good girl? You know, so who's a good girl. So it's like, now I have a girl dog and she's sweet and she's loving and she's laying next to me and she's snoring and she farts and she's just like a guy dog, a boy dog, but she's my good girl. So I have my good girl. 
Yeah, that and also like back to where we started, like you just see people. And I think like that's where uh, you connect at a, at a heart level, at an energetic level. It's not, a, you know, it doesn't matter again, age, race, sex, size, color, you know, socioeconomic profile. And I think that's where I, you and I connect most. It's like same, like I, I just see people, I certainly have stories and men and all these other, you know, issues that have created my own traumas in life, similar to you and the school bus or me in a restaurant or office place. But ultimately, like you see, or you want to see people's heart, you want to see their soul, you want them to show you that in them, I believe, because you show that in you, you know, like, I want people to see that I want people to see how amazing they are. Right. I want them to know how beautiful they are, how strong they are. So then with that perfect segue to this podcast is called everything you need is inside. And it, it draws me to ask you like, uh, one, do you trust yourself after all of this pain that you've inflicted or been inflict like afflicted by, do you trust yourself? I trust that I'm on the right path and I trust that I have the right people around me. I, it's funny, I was gonna, you're somebody who I'm massively both inspired by and jealous of. I guess. So you and my friend Kara, the champagne die, Kara Alwell, are two women who are two of the most driven, who have created these amazing lives for themselves. And I'm, I'm beginning to trust now that now that Luther and some other people have come into my life that I'm not on my own anymore. You know, I haven't seemed to be able, the great hurdle for me is to create a finance, being comfortable financially, which is something that's eluded me all my life, except for the times when I've been dealt drugs. And even when I was dealing drugs, I ended up spending all the money. But I had enough money so I could spend it. And now, you know, having to go out in the cold and teach Soul Cycle when I'd rather be do that three times a week, I have to do it every day of the week and take every class because I don't have enough life coaching clients. So I don't trust myself, but I trust that I'm on the right path, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. You know, I'd love you to tell me, like, how do I grow my business? Because I don't know how. I don't know what more to do but I trust that it's going to work out eventually because my life has always worked out. Yeah. I'm and just, I would also say that growing a business right now is almost impossible and that, well, yeah, but I'm it's, like, it's life coaching via FaceTime. Like that shouldn't be a barrier, you know, and even, even before COVID I wasn't able to build it. Yeah, okay. So it's just, you know, do I trust myself? The answer to answer your question is I trust the people around me that believe in me that say it's going to be okay. And do you, I mean, I think part of it, though, is like knowing if everybody sees you, right? How do you see you? You know, like, because as you stand in this world, you are seen as a guide, as a savior in a lot of ways, as a helper. People feel safe saying to you, I need help, right? That mm -hmm. takes so much courage to actually admit that. So do you see the amount of, of not power, but... um conviction and presence you have in this world in so many people's worlds. I do. I, 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 I am 
incredibly i literally i got a text from one of my life coaching clients um right before we had this right before this started and she's a lady that's 67 years old and didn't think she was going to change and she tells me all the time she goes i didn't think you were going to be able to she said in the text she goes i didn't think you were going to be able to do anything for me because i'm 67 and i'm a widow like nothing was going to change. I'm a grandmother. And she goes, you've changed my life in the last month and a half so dramatically. And she goes, I didn't believe anything. And I, she, every time I tell her to do something like a little task or a project, she tells me, I'm not, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it. And every time she finishes it, she calls me up and texts me and be like, I can't believe that actually helped, but it actually helped. And you're changed my life. And it's like, I see, I know my value. I know my value. And I know my sense. I have a good sense of self-worth. I just haven't found that final click to how do I take that and, and very, 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 very honestly, how do I monetize that? You know, how do I do I have a book that I've finished, you know, it's hopefully coming out in January, probably February at this point, because I've had my computer in repair. So, you know, February, let's say Valentine's day, because all launches a Valentine's day release because I'm such an anti Valentine's day person that'll be the perfect valentine's gift for yourself called stop thinking thoughts to scare you and it's a combination of my my life story and different practical work you can do um to change your life and change your mind headspace so i see my value and i know my value i just haven't re i haven't gotten the rewards yet i have them on a spiritual and a mental and emotional i just haven't got them in the financial yet and i think because you you've felt pain, you've seen pain, you're able to see it in others and, and save people from their own. So um, thanks for being that in this world. Thanks for making time for this call. Um, thanks you're... for always being someone I, I know that I can call you. And that, that speaks volumes because I, I know how to ask for help. I too have learned to ask for help. And a lot of people ask for my help, but you know, it takes a lot of courage to say like, can you help me? So um, for being that in this world, I, I'm grateful for, for you, for your energy. You, you inspire me beyond words. You're somebody who I watch your journey and I love and adore and I care about. And you're, you're an incredible, incredible presence. You are such a powerful figure in this world. And I, I just truly adore you. And, I, and I, at the same time, you know, the, what overwhelms everything when I talked about jealousy and that's all that all, that, that all comes from my fear and insecurity. I'm in awe of you. You know, what you've created and what you've built, you're just such an incredible, incredible woman. I'm honored to know you and honored to call you my friend. Thank you. You know, I can't wait to hug you in person. And I'm so excited to read your book and share your book and make sure as many people as possible buy that book.